Well, if you turn in your text now, we will turn to the Word of God in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This morning we will be completing our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And the benediction that Paul has given here in verses 23 through 28. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28 in our text today. And here Paul writes the ending to this letter of his desire for the church at Thessalonica. And is reflective, of course, of what God's great desire for our lives would be. And our scripture reading comes now from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, and we begin at verse 23. The text reads, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your eternal and precious word. It will never fade. And all will come to pass as has been declared. We pray, O oh God, that you would open the eyes of our heart once again, that we might see great and wonderful things from thy word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. By way of review, this letter from the Apostle Paul and the conclusion here that he wrote would be a letter that you and I would love to receive. This is a letter overall that you and I would be so very blessed to receive had it been personal to us and our church. It would be and is an encouragement to us even as we've read it because the Apostle Paul here, he expresses his extreme gratitude to God and his love for the church. He is so very grateful because of the transforming power of God in the lives of these people, how they turned from idols to serve a true and living God, and how the gospel had transformed their hearts such that they had labored because of their love, their faith drove them to work, and their hope made them steadfast in the things of the Lord. They were people who were genuinely transformed, and they had a powerful testimony because of the power of God, such that their church was known throughout all of Achaia, all of Macedonia, and others were speaking so well of the church because of what God had done. And the Apostle Paul points that out in the very first chapter. And in the second chapter, though, he does address a number of critics, a number of critics, a number of detractors who had questioned whether or not Paul was genuine or whether or not he had some ulterior motive. And Paul writes to them and he says, no, don't you remember? Don't you recall how I came to you 
as a mother who would take care of her child, as a father who would encourage his children and admonish them to do what is right? Don't you recall how I worked and how I didn't come with flattering speech, how I didn't come with eloquence, but I came and the power of God worked in your life and you are the validation of the power of the gospel. And as if he were homesick, he expresses his desire to come see them. That is how much he loved the church. He loved the church so much that he sent Timothy back in chapter 3 to go visit the church. And when he had heard news about the church, he wrote about how he was so very encouraged that they were standing strong in the faith, that they were standing firm, and he expresses his desire once again to go and see them. They were doing so well. They were doing very well. And in fact, in chapter 4, he continues to remind them, though, don't rest on your laurels of how well you're doing, though. Excel still more. Love one another still more. Live an orderly life. Live a holy life. Live a pure life. Don't worry about those who have passed away. They will see Jesus who will come again in the clouds and we will be raptured up. And the day of the Lord will come, which you will not be a part of. The day of the Lord will come unexpectedly. There will be a judgment. A time when he will judge the world And so in light of that, he says to them in chapter 5, live as children of light. Live godly lives in light of the fact Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And so as you do, have a continual attitude of joy. Have a continual attitude of thanksgiving, he says in chapter 5. Have a continual attitude of prayer and stay away from sin. Stay away from evil. And now Paul concludes this letter. He concludes this letter by answering the question, what is God's desire? What is his supreme desire for you and for me? What is his will that we be? Because his desire should be our desire. His desire is that we would be, and that's the first aspect of which he points out, that we would be sanctified, that we would be spiritually perfected, that we would be more and more like Jesus, that they would walk with God, and that we would be more godly as each day passes. And so in this very last portion of the letter, he points out his desire and he encourages them in that desire, reminding them of that, that God wants them to be completely blameless. And then he gives three final instructions as well. So we look at that passage in verse 23, where Paul writes, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the idea here, the main idea here is the idea of sanctification. It is the key term. And that term means to set apart to separate, that one is continually set apart from sin unto a holy life. And it's a common word in the Bible. It's a common word even all the way back to the Old Testament when something is sanctified or set apart unto God. It goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, it says that God himself sanctified the seventh day and rested from his creative work. In Exodus, it says that God set apart the firstborn of his people in Exodus 13. 
Just prior to giving Moses the Ten Commandments, he set apart Israel as a holy nation. He set them apart, and he set apart Mount Sinai, telling the people not to come too close. He sanctified it, Exodus 19. The Lord sanctified Aaron and his sons for the priestly duties before the Lord in Exodus 28. He set apart and sanctified the temple as, and the and utensils that were going to be used there for sacred purposes. He sanctified Samuel, sanctified Jesse and his son David in 1 Samuel 16. And many years later, God sanctified the temple in which they would worship. So this whole idea that God set apart people for his own possession, he set apart a day, he set apart things that were sacred to him, that were special to him, harkens all the way back to the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see God continues to do this work. He sets and sanctifies John the Baptist to be a messenger, a forerunner. Jesus, as well as the other apostles, for their special work, we see that God sets them apart. He sets them apart. But in this particular word, in this particular term that is used in the New Testament, it is often used more so in the sense of salvation, not simply setting apart something, but in salvation in our lives, that God would sanctify us. And it's used in three different senses, three different senses that the word is used here in the New Testament. There is, in the beginning, what we call initial or positional or definitive sanctification. When one is sanctified, they are initially sanctified when they are saved. They're positionally sanctified. They're positionally set apart, free from the bondage of sin, set apart unto God. This position is no longer one of an enemy of God, no longer under the wrath of God, no longer one who has their fist raised to God, no longer one who is unsaved or unholy. But now they are holy. Positionally, they are. And this would be the term that is used in 1 Corinthians 6.11. As an example, Paul tells the Corinthians, but you were washed, he tells the church. You were washed, past tense. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Spirit of our God. One is initially sanctified, positionally sanctified, positionally set apart unto God at the time of salvation. But many times we'll use the term, and we see the term in the New Testament as well, in what we call progressive sanctification or experiential sanctification. This is the primary sense in which we often speak of it today. It's used when one continually abandons sin in their life, living a more and more holy life, living a life that is more separated from sin and holy unto God. And in everyday terms, we call this spiritual growth, Christian growth, what we call progressive sanctification. We're progressively becoming more like Jesus in our sanctification. We're being set apart from sin, and we abandon sinful patterns of life and adopt holy and righteous living. Romans 6.19 would be an example of that. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness in the past. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So when we come to Christ, when we're saved, that is called initial sanctification. That's sometimes how it's used. Many times it's used in the sense of our progression as our growth in Christ, as we become more and more like Jesus. We're being sanctified. And then there is ultimate or final sanctification 
And this happens after you die or if Jesus comes again. You are made practically righteous, completely righteous because you will have a glorified body. You will live a sinless life in heaven. There's no longer any sin but only a holy life. You are finally and completely set apart, not just positionally as God looks at you, but practically in your life, you will be one who experiences that ultimate or final sanctification. Speaking to the church, Paul writes in Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify you, her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That Christ would sanctify the church and bring her and present to himself the church in all her glory, that we might be finally sanctified and be perfected in Christ. And this is what God does in your life. He saves you initially, he helps you to grow, and he brings you to a point in which you will be perfected in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the work of the Trinity in your life. That's the work of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. All of your life, God is using His Word and His Holy Spirit to sanctify you, to help you to become more and more godly as an individual, as a Christian. This is done by the Word of God. As the Word of God is used by the Spirit of God in your life, and He desires this to be in your life for His glory. And the question, the practical question for us is if this is God's desire for you, if this is what Paul desires for the church, is that your great desire for yourself? Is it your great desire for yourself? Is it your desire to see your spouse or your children grow and be sanctified so that someday, as you give an account before the Lord of how faithful you were with your family or encouraging your friends or those of your children that you've led them along a path that they would be more and more sanctified. You know, it's that time of year when students go back to school. We invest a great deal of time and energy in our children's education. We make sure their curriculum is good. We put them to bed early. We pray for their teachers. We be sure that their homework is done on time when they receive assignments. We remind them of that. Why? Because it's important. It's important for their future, and it's wholly appropriate. But do we care just as much? Do we care just as much or even more about their spiritual education, about their spiritual growth? We put them early to bed on Saturday night, Do we make them a good breakfast so they come to church ready and alert? Do we make sure they've done their reading or their homework or their Sunday school lesson? Is that our desire for them, that they would grow in the likeness of Christ through what they would learn here? Do you wish for your family and your children that which Paul wished, that they would be sanctified entirely, as the text says, and may your spirit and soul and body preserve complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus? You know, if somebody from the State Education Board came, they would look at your family life from the outside, your volunteer work at school, your attendance at school meetings, or your children's extracurricular activities. If somebody from the State Education Board looked at your priorities of your children's homework and the amount of time that they're able to spend, if they were all to look at the overall investment that you have vested in your child's education, would they say, I 
without a doubt, would say they are invested in their children's education, that they would succeed in school, that they would have a well-rounded life, that they would make the most of opportunities that are afforded to them and whatever activities are offered. Would they say that? Great. If a mature Christian, on the other hand, were to look at your family life, your own interest in your children's spiritual growth, your own interest in what they're learning in Sunday school, your own interest in what they're learning in service, your own investment in helping them to understand the Word of God, to help them memorize their scripture verses that they're given by their Sunday school teachers, your own interest and your own investment in how they are doing spiritually, would somebody be able to say, without a doubt, the focal point of their life And their obvious highest priority is that their children would know Jesus and grow in the likeness of Christ and love God with all of their heart. Paul desires that for the church. Paul desires that here. He says, may God himself sanctify you entirely. And he uses a figure of speech, spirit, soul, and body. That's not to say that those are three parts of a person. It's a figure of speech to say that the whole person, all of them, their entire life would be one that would be like Christ. Same idea. Figure of speech when Paul says, or when Jesus says in Mark 12, 30, says you shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He's not talking about four parts of a person. He's talking about that we would love God with all that we are. Do we desire that for others that we know? Is it our desire that they would grow deep and to think biblically, to love God and to love his word and to be serious about the things of God? Or is it just on Sundays? And the rest of the time, it's about whatever else, entertainment, education, whatever it may be. What is encouraging is this in verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. Reminds me of one of my favorite passages in Philippians 1.6. It says, for I'm confident of this very thing, Paul writes, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Because you see, it's an important truth that no matter what your failures are, no matter how hard you've tried and struggled and fallen, no matter what kinds of baggage you've come to Christ with, no matter what kind of mistakes you've made, that God is the one who will make and perfect us, that God is the one who will sanctify us, that God is the one who will bring us to that point that someday we'll be free from sin and God will help us to succeed and as he glorifies us. So don't be discouraged because the struggle is so difficult. Don't be discouraged that you may not be doing as well as you would want to be in your walk with Christ. Don't be discouraged, but keep striving because he who began a good work, he who began a good work in you and you and you and you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God's desire is that we be sanctified, that we be progressively set apart more and more like Christ. And that ought to be our desire for ourselves and for our family and for those that we see are believers. Secondly, he writes in this benediction, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. 
Not only is Paul dependent upon God, just as we all are, but Paul pleads with them for their prayers as well. Paul is not too proud to ask for prayers. Paul is not too proud to ask for their prayers. Commentator William Hendrickson writes, the man Paul, who in the midst of his Herculean labors in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine exclaims, who is weak? That I am not weak. And who prefaces that remark with a long list of sufferings and hardships which he had had to endure? feels the need for prayer. Gardner Spring, a 19th century Presbyterian pastor in New York City, he understood the role of prayer. He understood the role of prayer in that the warfare that we wage is on our knees, and he made an impassioned plea for Christians to pray for their pastors. He writes, oh, it is at a fearful expense that Ministers are ever allowed to enter the pulpit without being preceded, accompanied, and followed by the earnest prayers of the churches. It's no marvel that the pulpit is so powerless and ministers so often disheartened when there are so few who hold up their hands. The consequence of neglecting this duty is seen and felt in the spiritual declension of the churches, and it will be seen and felt in the everlasting perdition of men. Well, the consequence of regarding it would be the ingathering of multitudes into the kingdom of God and new glories to the Lamb that was slain. On his behalf, therefore, and on behalf of his beloved and respect brethren in the ministry, the writer would crave an interest in the prayers of all who love the Savior and the souls of men. We are the dispensers of God's truth and at best fall far below our mighty theme. The duties of our calling return upon us with every returning week and day. They often come upon us with many and conflicting demands. They sometimes put a demand upon all of our thoughts and at the time we've lost our power of thinking and sometimes they call for the intensity and the strength of our affections just at the time that the least capable of expressing them. They're associated with these demands, the pressing distress or decaying anxiety, which exhausts our vigor and cripples our courage and drinks up our spirit. And then in addition to all of this, there are so many disappointments in our work that we desperately need the sympathy and comforts of the prayers of God's faithful people. The work of those who serve, the work of those who serve, whether they be Sunday school teachers or leaders in the church, cannot be done effectively without prayer. It is God who works in and through every individual. But Paul here pleads for the prayers of the church. Prayer is the work of the church. There's an account of five young college students who were spending a Sunday in London, and they went to hear the very famous C.H. Spurgeon, who was a pastor in the 1800s. And they were waiting for the doors to open of the church when they were greeted by a man. And this man said to them, gentlemen, let me show you around. Would you like to see the heating plant for the church? Well, they weren't particularly interested because it was a hot day in July but they didn't want to offend the stranger, and so they consented. The young men were taken down a stairway, a door that was quietly opened, and their guide whispered to them, this is our heating plant, and he opened the door. 
The students looked in, and they saw 700 people who bowed in prayer. And they sought a blessing on that service as soon as it began to fill in the auditorium above. And the gentleman then introduced himself as Spurgeon. Hundreds of people, and you can go and visit today, and sometimes they'll even have some of the pads that they would kneel under because he was known as the Prince of Preachers. He was a Baptist minister, lived in the 19th century and in England, and he saw a tremendous blessing upon the ministry because of the prayers of the people. Some services drew as many 10,000 people at a time, in a time when they didn't have PA systems. Spurgeon never took credit for the success of the ministry that was there, but he always pointed to the hundreds of people that continued to pray before and during and after the services, underneath in what he called the boiler room, because in those days, steam power was the power source of energy. Boiler rooms were the powerhouses. Boiler rooms were not pleasant places to visit. They were dirty. They were hot. They were functional, but often tucked away in the basement. And there would be hundreds of people who would pray for the ministry and for the church. And he saw the prayers of the people as the spiritual power behind the ministry and behind his own preaching. And that's why he said to his fellow brethren, brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. That Christians would care to pray, to call upon God. And as we learned last week, proud people do not pray. Proud people don't pray. They have no need for God. They have no need for dependence. They don't say, God, I beg of you, help me today. When you pray, what do you pray like? What are your prayers filled with? They're prayers about me, prayers about my wants and desires, or they prayers for God's people, God's glory, God's church, for the ministry. The effective prayer, as James 5.16 says, of a righteous man can accomplish much. So it says, brethren, pray for us, verse 25. Then verse 26, not only are we to pray for leaders, not only are we to desire that we be sanctified, but we are to show hospitality. Verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now this is not some insignificant comment at the end of a letter. This is an imperative, it is a command. It's found in the book of Romans. It's found in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's not relegated, I don't think, to just for that time, just for that place. And when we look at a passage such as this, we discern that there is a difference between the principle and the practice. The principle and the practice. The biblical principle remains the same, but the practice of how it's expressed may differ depending upon the context. And the principle is greeting, and that, that particular word conveys a, quote, friendly and righteous gesture as opposed to a formal, reserved acknowledgement, as one commentator writes. In other words, Paul's command here is not simply to say, hi, and walk away, but to encourage them to be friendly and to encourage them to exhibit genuine care and hospitality. You see, the standard practice in those days in biblical times was a kiss. 
If you were greeting that which was a superior to you, you would kiss their foot, you would kiss their knee, you would kiss their elbow, or sometimes you would kiss their hand. If you were a friend, you would kiss them on the cheek. Some people still do this. I still remember during a welcome time, a newcomer grabbed me and kissed me on the cheek. It was rather awkward, but some people still practice that. The practice of the kiss continued up until the 13th century, when the Western church turned to a handshake or a hug, and different people in different cultures will greet one another differently. If you've ever flown Thai Airways, the Thai people, they'll have a little bow, they'll do this, and it makes you feel real special as you leave the airplane. Or those who are particularly traditional in Chinese, they'll, they'll hold their fist in their hand with a few shakes. Or maybe you were in the mountains of Tibet. Two people approach each other with open hands to show that they're not holding a weapon. They will bow and they'll stick their tongue out to show that they have no bad words to say as well. Or in Eastern Europe, some will still kiss. They'll kiss you on the cheek, both sides, and some will kiss you on the lips as well. The means of practice is not the key. The principle behind the practice is, though, and that is to greet one another with sincerity. And that is what we're to do. That is what we are to do. As you know, we have here an extended welcome time, probably longer than you might find at other churches. Now, whether you like it or not, whether you feel comfortable or not, whether you want to or not, the command is still the same, to greet one another warmly, to show genuine care to one another by extending to them a genuine welcome. That is what we're to do. I remember visiting a church many years ago, and I was with my family, and this, as many churches do, we have a stand-up and welcome time. My family was there, and I was on the end. I remember these folks right in front of us. They stood up. They turned around and saw that we were newcomers, and they turned right around. And I thought to myself, well, that's okay. So I tapped them on the shoulder and I said, hi, my name is Joe. We're visiting here. Are you, do you regularly come here? How long have you been here? Are you pretty plugged in? I wasn't going to let that dissuade me from welcoming them. They weren't going to be greeting me. I'd greet them. You have a tremendous opportunity. You have a tremendous opportunity to bless somebody. And you can't say, well, you know what, I don't know, I'm an introvert, I, greeting time makes my stomach churn. <laughs> Some of you might have read the blog by Tim Challies. Tim Challies is a blogger, he's a prolific reader, and he's a pastor who, in his natural self, supremely dislikes the welcome time. He writes in an article entitled, How I Learned to Embrace and Stand the Stand and Greet Time, he writes, I may not know you, but I think one thing is safe to say. You do not have as much natural revulsion as I do toward a stand and greet time during a church service. You don't feel a greater measure of inward terror when you hear the service leader command, quote, stand up and greet a few people around you, unquote. I'm naturally shy, he writes, introverted and easily intimidated, and I always can always feel the fear rising when I hear those words. And yet I'm involved in planning our church services and often advocate for a stand and greet time. Let me tell you why I believe in this time of greeting one another, even though it is completely contrary to my natural desires. Why are you part of a church community, he asks. Why are you a member of a church? Why do you go to the public gatherings of the church on Sunday morning? Broadly speaking, there can be two reasons. You go for the good of yourself, or you go for the good of others. 
There's a world of difference between the two. When I go to the church for the good of me, I'm free to be shy, introverted, keep to myself, and free to be consistent with who and I naturally am. I can hide in a corner, bury myself in a book. I can hope that others will come to me and pay attention to me. I can come for the service, sing some songs, listen to a sermon, and slip out seconds after the final amen. I can do what is good and comfortable for me. I can hate that stand and greet time because of how it makes me feel, because how it forces me to shake hands with people who have colds, because of how it prompts me to judge others as less sincere than myself. But when I go for the good of others, I have no right to be shy and introverted, no right to keep to myself. I have to die to myself, and so much of who and what I naturally am, I can't hide in a corner or bury myself in a book, but I need to seek out others and pay attention to them. I can come for the service, sing some songs, hear a sermon, enjoy it all, but when I hear that final amen, I am right back to seeking out others and looking for ways to serve them. I believe in the second option, he writes, and I try to practice it. When I walk into Grace Fellowship Church eager to do good for others, I am guarding myself against those ways that my natural introversion leads me to sin, especially the sin of selfishness. One of these ways is running away from other people. Rather than loving and greeting them, That selfishness can even manifest itself in grumbling and complaining about that time of forced fellowship when we all stand and greet one another. The stand and greet time still terrifies me, he writes, if I allow it to, but I've learned to embrace it as another opportunity to serve others. I can meet people I haven't met. I can find a visitor I didn't catch on the way in and greet him. I can talk to people I don't otherwise tend to talk to. That time pushes me outside of my boundaries. Something uncomfortable, but good. I believe in it. I just plain need to get over myself because that's what the Christian life is about. And then he writes this point. What I've come to see is here. My natural desires and fears are completely irrelevant when it comes to what is right and wrong, what is wise and unwise. If this time of greeting is an opportunity to serve others, I need to learn to love it. I just plain need to get over myself because that's what the Christian life is all about. So the question is, why are we here in a community of believers? Why have we come to a community of other Christians? It is to express the one another's of the New Testament to express the one and others of the New Testament, which you cannot do if one says, I'm going to stay home and worship God by watching TV. How in the world are we going to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to admonish one another, to encourage one another, to be there for one another, and to greet one another? How in the world can we do that? That is only going to happen in the community of believers. So Paul expresses here in this word greet that which is a warm and genuine welcome to others. And then he concludes with a strong and serious command to share the word of God. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read 
To all the brethren, verse 27, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. This last command of Paul is a serious one. He uses a strong word, which is to adjure, which means to be bound by an oath. That oath was to have this letter that was written by the apostle read to all the brethren. And many times they only had one copy. It's not as if they had a printing press. It's not as if they had many copies. And many letters in the New Testament were called circular letters because they were circulated among the churches and read to the various brothers and sisters in the church. He wanted them to know what God wanted them to know. He wanted them to excel still more. He wanted them to rejoice always, to have a thankful spirit, to pray continually. He wanted them to know about the coming of our Lord Jesus, and he wanted them to be sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ. As one author writes, the closing requests Paul made to the Thessalonians match what all dedicated pastors desire from their churches that their people pray for them, that the people demonstrate affection for one another, that their people hear, read, study, and apply the Word of God. And I would pray that that would be our desire here as well, that we would hear and heed and remind ourselves of the things that the Lord has revealed to us and taught us and convicted us of the things that we need to do that we might be doers of the word of God and not merely hearers, that we might be sanctified and perfected, that God might receive glory from a powerful life and your testimony would be one that would resonate throughout all of the other Christians that would know and hear about how God has changed your life. May that be the truth in Jesus' name. Let's pray and close. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. Father in heaven, we pray that it might dwell richly in our heart, that you, O oh Father, might be honored. God, change our lives. We need your help. We humble ourselves before you, asking, O oh Father, that your spirit would conform us to the likeness of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.